We'll continue with our series in the book of Esther and today we'll look at Esther who approached the king. Esther approached the king and we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 5 verses 1 through to 5. All the Jews in the Medo-Persian Empire had a death sentence hanging over them due to Haman, who was second in the kingdom, gaining permission from King Ahasuerus to destroy the Jews in about a year's time. Consequently, in Esther chapter 4, we saw that after some very persuasive words from Esther's adoptive father, Mordecai, such as, he put it to her that maybe that she's in the kingdom for such a time as this. Persuasive words from him. She recognised that it was for her to approach King Ahasuerus on behalf of all her people, the Jews, even if approaching them without being called by the king resulted in her own demise. As she said in chapter 4 and verse 16, if I perish... I perish. Today we shall look at the details of Queen Esther entering into the presence of the king without being invited, which might so easily have been her death sentence. Look again at verse 1. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house and the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. Esther had completed three days of fasting and no doubt she had committed everything to God in prayer. I'll just remind you yet again, God doesn't even get a mention in this book but it's, it's so clear that God was directing events. We see God moving in a mysterious way here in order to preserve the Jews. The time had now come for her to approach the king, which first of all meant standing in the inner court of the king's house, which she had herself explained in chapter 4 and verse 11 was a capital crime, except a person had first been called by the king. It's something that you mustn't do unless the king calls you first. If she had worn sombre clothing during her time of fasting, she most certainly was not going to wear her sombre clothing clothing rather, to approach the king. And so she put on her royal apparel, which was more suited to her royal status. No good wearing sackcloth and ashes. We saw in a previous study that no one can enter uh, get into the after the gates, get through the gates of the palace with sackcloth and ashes. The king doesn't want to see miserable people. Entering into the presence of King Ahasuerus with suitable attire has a spiritual application with eternal consequences. I'm going to read to you a passage in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. If you want to turn with me, it's up to you. Keep your finger in Esther, chapter 4. 
Matthew chapter 22, I'm going to read verses 1 through to 14. And we'll see the importance of having the right clothes on. Verse 1 in Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. Now this really has reference to, not all, but um, the Jews in general. The Jews, they received not the Lord Jesus Christ, having having slain the prophets that were sent before Jesus. Ultimately, God sent his Son into the world. They received not the Lord Jesus Christ, and ultimately, they crucified him. They were not willing to hear the gospel message and be saved. So we're in verse 7 here. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests, both Jews and Gentiles alike. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. That's quite a severe punishment, isn't it, for not wearing the right clothing at the wedding feast there. The wedding garments would have been provided by the king. And the response of the king most certainly was not favourable towards that man who was not wearing a wedding garment. The wedding garment represents what? It represents the righteousness that was stitched together over 33 years when the Lord Jesus Christ was in this world of sin and he lived a life of perfect obedience for all of you who trust in him. That obedience culminated in the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross where he was wounded for your transgressions and he was bruised for your iniquity. The Bible makes it very clear 
that our acceptance before God is in the Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must come to God clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his righteousness and not in our own filthy rags of unrighteousness, self-righteousness. We come to God clothed in Christ. In Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10, the prophet said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. The prophet rejoiced because he was clothed in garments of salvation and covered with that cloak of righteousness. Covered with Jesus, in other words. His salvation, his righteousness. What about you? Do you rejoice along with the prophet? Let's have a look at verse 2. If you find your way back to Esther chapter 5. And it was so when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, that she obtained favour in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. The king saw his wife, the queen, in the inner court and he beckoned her in by holding out the golden scepter to her. That must have been an answer to prayer by her and many others, all the Jews that had been fasting and praying. Something of that answer to prayer can be seen in the fact that she obtained favour in his sight, despite the fact that according to chapter 4 and verse 11, She had not been called to him for 30 days. Now, I'm sure the Holy Spirit put that information in chapter 4, verse 11 for a reason. She hadn't seen the king. She hadn't been called to him for a month, which suggests, perhaps, a waning interest in her by the king. It would seem that in response to the fasting and prayers of God's people, And in accordance with his own purpose, God made the king favourable towards Esther. I say that because, for one thing, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. That's in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1. And I really hang on to that verse and I think about it when I see our leaders and I I'm comforted with the knowledge that ultimately their hearts are in the hand of the Lord and he turns their hearts whithersoever he will according to his good pleasure. That we have a sovereign God. And it's not just kings either. God can and does soften people's hearts and he makes them favourable in various situations with those whom they might not ordinarily be favourable towards. 
We see that to be the case in the book of Daniel, where it is written in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into favour and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. Who brought Daniel into favour with the prince of the eunuchs? God did. How do you imagine that God did that? He softened the, the prince of the eunuchs' heart towards Daniel. And then there are various other examples, such as the Lord giving Joseph favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison, in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 21. And as we see in our verse here, in verse 2, the king beckoned Esther to come to him, even though he hadn't seen her for 30 days. Let's have a look at verses 3 and 4. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. When the king said, What wilt thou, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be given thee to the half of the kingdom. He was being exceedingly generous, wasn't he? The half of his kingdom. Can you imagine any tyrannical ruler giving away half of his kingdom to anyone? What you do well to understand is that it was the language of exaggeration. King Herod was another tyrannical Middle Eastern leader who used that kind of language. He had been reproved by John the Baptist for taking his brother's wife, Herodias, which is not lawful, it's adultery. Anyway, one day the daughter of Herodias danced in front of Herod and it pleased him. And consequently the king said to Herodias' daughter, who pleased him with her dancing, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he swear unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. Familiar words, eh? Prompted by her mother, the girl asked for, and she received John the Baptist's head on a charger or a serving dish. You needn't imagine that King Herod or King Ahasuerus were prepared to surrender up to half of their kingdom. There is, however, a king who makes very generous offers and he does not use the language of exaggeration. Who do you think that king is who makes very, very generous offers? The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. In John chapter 16 and verse 23, King Jesus said to his disciples, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. It doesn't get more generous than that, does it? Whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. 
And that's not the language of exaggeration either. If you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, if you are trusting in him as your saviour from sin, you are to take him at his word. Whatsoever ye ask the Father in Jesus' name, he will give it you. How about that? Sadly, all too often, verses like this are taken to mean that if you have the faith to ask God for a private jet or a new car, in Jesus' name, of course, you can expect to get it. Provided, of course, you demonstrate the strength of your faith by making your checks payable to the prosperity gospel preacher on the God channel or by giving generously in the offerings. The whole thrust of the prosperity gospel is that you boldly petition God for material wealth whilst you generously sow your money into the coffers of the preachers and churches that deliver such a perversion of the gospel of God's free grace. So what are you to ask the Father for in Jesus' name? It's not for me to tell you, is it? But let me give you some idea what you are to ask for. How about a closer walk with Jesus? That's a good one, isn't it? More holiness in your life. Deliverance from the power of sin. A greater Christ-likeness. Wisdom, discernment, and the will to do your heavenly Father's will. More compassion and love for others. A greater love for God. Opportunities for, and the courage to, share the gospel of Christ. And the strength to endure affliction, even unto death. Queen Esther didn't ask for half of the kingdom. Instead, she asked the king to come on that same day with the wicked Haman to a banquet that she had prepared for them. What was all that about? Had Queen Esther chickened out? Had she got cold feet? After all, she was going there to petition the king for the Jews, was she not? Why did she then invite the king to come to a banquet that she had prepared and to bring along Haman, the instigator of that genocide. Actually, that young lady was exercising great wisdom and great diplomacy. Let's not forget that Queen Esther's vitally important intervention on behalf of all the Jews in the kingdom had been preceded by what? By fasting and no doubt by a lot of prayer. And God would respond in his way and in his time. So, strictly speaking, what can be seen unfolding is not so much the wisdom of Esther, but rather the wisdom of an infinitely wise God whose foolishness is infinitely wiser than the wisdom of men. Queen Esther could not just blurt out her plea for the king to revoke the decree to kill the Jews. That's not how it worked. Even though the decree was the brainchild and work of the wicked Haman, 
it was nevertheless written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring, according to chapter 3 and verse 12. And when a law was passed in the Medo-Persian Empire, it could not be revoked. That is explicitly given in the book of Daniel, chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. On that occasion in Daniel, King Darius wanted to deliver Daniel from the den of lions. But certain men who had it in for Daniel said to the king, No decree nor statute which the king establisheth may be changed. Not even the king could change it or revoke it. Let's also not forget that despite the king's ridiculously generous offer to Queen Esther to give her up to half his kingdom, she had in fact been out of favour with him for 30 days. Therefore, Queen Esther invited the king to a banquet which she had prepared for him and his golden boy, Haman. He would have been greatly flattered by that invitation and all said and done, the difficult task of supplicating the king for the Jews could wait. It wasn't urgent. It's not as if their destruction was imminent. It was nearly a year away. For the time being and under God's guidance, she was biding her time before making her request. I trust you can see the reason for Esther not steaming in with her supplication on behalf of all the Jews when you consider the fact that the decree to destroy the Jews was not something that the king could simply tear up. Whoever you are, you have probably learnt from bitter experience that it's not always a good idea to charge in like a bull in a china shop when you have to deal with matters. I'm still learning there. I most certainly claim no great wisdom of my own and I'm still learning to bide my time. I, I, I blame my mother. She was another one who needed to get things done now. It's all her fault and I'm just the same. And I'm still learning to slow down a bit and pray that I slow down. As I commit everything to God in prayer and look to him for guidance. Even so, I am nevertheless thankful that I have God as my loving Heavenly Father when I do charge in like a bull in a china shop. I have the Son of God as my shepherd who, despite my impetuosity, leadeth me beside the still waters and in the paths of righteousness. He makes me lie down in those green pastures and just think upon him, Jesus. Slow down a bit, Glenn. Think about me and my goodness towards you. All that I've done for you. All that I'm doing for you. I'm thankful that I have God the Holy Spirit working in me to will and to do of God's good pleasure. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul contrasts our foolishness with the wisdom of God. And then he goes on to tell us about the wisdom and so much more that we have in Jesus. 
I love these verses. When I first became a Christian, my old pastor showed them to me and I thought, well, what more could you ask for here? Listen to this. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through to 31. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, of God, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Do you appreciate what you have in Christ, dear Christian. You have wisdom and you have everything else that you could possibly want or need. You have everything in Jesus. We've just been considering biding your time and looking to God for wisdom like Queen Esther did. However, I can think of something that is so pressing and so urgent that you cannot bide your time if it applies to you. It doesn't matter how old you are or what health you are in, what your health is like. You might be young, you might be fit as a fiddle. You quite literally do not know when you will die and meet your maker. You really don't. None of us do. Today could be our last day. Therefore, if you have not yet received Jesus and believed on his name, do not delay. How foolish that would be. Repent, be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to trust in Jesus as your saviour from sin and as your Lord. For it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. May it please God for you to know Jesus as your Saviour, your wisdom and everything else besides. Amen.